Welcome to episode 11 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Professor Samuele Marcora, who studied and worked in the US, UK, and Italy, and his PhD is in exercise physiology at the University of Wales, Bangor. He currently teaches applied physiology and training methodology at the University of Bologna uh, in Italy, and his research integrates exercise physiology with motivation psychology and cognitive neuroscience to better understand fatigue, endurance performance, and physical activity behavior. So that maybe sounds a little technical, but uh, trust me, it's all worth it. And uh, I'm sure some of you will have heard his name before, especially as we get into the interview, you'll understand what we're talking about there. Uh, So Professor Markora has authored numerous high impact scientific publications, and he's been a consultant for many organizations, including Juventus Football Club, uh, MAPEI Sport, and ASICS. In 2013, he rode a BMW GS1200 bike from London to Beijing to investigate fatigue in motorbike riders too. Uh, So in the show, we discuss his psychobiological model of endurance performance and how the limiting factor for how hard and long you can push is the brain, not the body. He explains how increased fitness is vital, but mainly through the mechanism of reducing perceived effort and that perceived effort is really what matters. We also discuss motivational intensity, then we close on practical takeaways to improve your running and racing in the real world. Do you want to run further and faster and recover quicker and easier? Do you want to feel healthier than you've ever felt before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. What's their secret? First, Inside Tracker uses its painted algorithm to analyze your body's data and offer you a clearer picture than you've ever had before of what's going on inside you. Then Inside Tracker provides you with concrete, science-backed, trackable action plan information for reaching your performance goals and being your healthy best. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering a 25% off in its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com/endurancehour. Start using Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. Welcome and thank you for joining me, Sam. Oh, thank you, Ian, for having me. I look forward so, to this. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so many good things to talk about here, and I think a lot of people will probably be most familiar with your name from books such as Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Uh, he mentioned your research a lot. In fact, his entire book is pretty much based around your main uh, model, which is a psychobiological model of endurance performance. So. Um, I think just to, to give people a little bit of background there, one of the things that matters most the longer a race gets, whether it's running or cycling or triathlon or anything, is that the mental side of it obviously comes into it more. It's not just about your physical limits. While in 100 meters, you push as hard as you can, last 10 seconds if you're really good, and then uh, that's all it comes down to really. But um, for these longer events, the ability to problem solve and to have non-physical attributes come into it becomes much more important. So. Um, what exactly is the psychobiological model of endurance performance and and what are the limiting factors to endurance that it's it's talking about mm. so basically it's a, it's a, it's a if you like a tra- theoretical model but as uh, i'm sure we will have time to discuss uh, with a lot of practical application 
the same happened to the previous model, which is the physiological model, you know, the one based on view to max, like the trestle, running economy, th those kind of things, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. That's what I call the physiological model. So explaining endurance performance using these physiological, uh, I call it constructs or factors, okay? Uh, the psychobiological model, first of all, is articulated in two levels. So the first level is from the name is the psychological level. So, and, and that's where there is a big difference from the physiological model because in the psychobiological model, the first level of explanation is based on only on psychological constructs. And then I can tell you that the most important ones is perception of effort and potential motivation. Um, then the biology comes at a lower level of explanation. So uh, basically when, for example, I study the neurophysiology of perception of effort, basically what are the biological basis of the feelings that we have uh, when we are running, in particular the feeling of how hard it is to produce and for endurance sustain a given speed. That's what I mean by perception of effort. So I've done some studies about the basic from, from where in the brain it comes from. And so that's about the, the biology of it. But interestingly, actually, that's more uh, useful information that we it may have some uh, practical application, but it's more to understand the mechanism. But at the psychological level, all I need to explain performance are these psychological variables where perception of effort is probably the most important. So that's this is a very big difference in, if you like, in the way of explaining endurance performance. But it's also based on the need, because I don't know, one can come up with the mod, new models. Uh, for me, the new, a new model should be, be developed only if there is a need for it. And and the reason why I, I started to think in a, in, a, in a new way, and I, on purpose, I did my first sabbatical, because I, I had a very traditional physiology uh, background. For example, when I was working, I've been working um, as a scientific consultant for MAPE, professional cycling team, for several years. And when we did work there, we were mainly using, again, the traditional physiological model, your view to max, your lactate, those kind of things. So, so, so you're basically trying to make people fitter and assume that that yeah, would be enough. Usual, the usual, the, I mean, yeah. it works. I mean, in many ways it works. That's why it has been applied. And, and I think a lot of your, um, uh, especially the more maybe professional uh, listeners, you know, the, the, I'm sure they may have had the view to max test or lactate threshold test, this kind of thing. So I, I come from there. I come from that camp. But then I realized that there was something missing, and that's why I decided to go to take my first sabbatical, or my 15 years ago now, uh, in the School of Psychology at the Bangor University in Wales, where I was then, uh, because I knew that I needed to um, integrate psychology and neuroscience into my standard uh, basic exercise physiology in order to understand fatigue and perf endurance performance better. And, the, and there are two reasons for it. The first one uh, is that some phenomena that I was seeing, uh, first of all, in my research with patients suffering from fatigue, feeling tired, you know, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, patients on hemodialysis, patients on uh, taking chemotherapy for cancer, you know, fatigue is a big problem there. And it's more the feeling of fatigue, the tiredness and this sense of effort, even doing very little things that really impairs their quality of life and, and make them disabled. Um, and then, of course, because they said, okay, before I study the people with disease, I need to study 
healthy people. We, we, we don't really know much about the perceived fatigue. So I decided the best people to do that are endurance athletes, right? And um, so that was one of the reasons why I moved into the psychobiological model. The other one is that there, there are some phenomena that are very, I, I would say, impossible to explain uh, if you use the traditional physiological model. For example, i just give you two examples. Maybe we can deepen those later on if you're interested, but just quickly now. Two examples. One is the effects of mental fatigue on endurance performance. So we found that mental fatigue reduces endurance performance. But of course, it doesn't have any effect on your mitochondria, on your lactate, on your cardiac output. So how can I explain these effects with, with the physiological model? I, I can't. Uh, on the other hand, for example, we found that some psychological techniques like motivational self-talk improve endurance performance. So again, uh, talking to yourself in a positive way doesn't make your uh, increase your stroke volume <laughs> or, or, or your ability to 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 metabolize lactate. You know, you cannot explain this phenomena with the traditional physiological model, and the therefore the 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 answer to this. The, the the easier easiest answer is this okay i use a physiological model for things like training hypoxia the effects of blood doping the effects of carbohydrate you know for the physiological stuff and for the psychological stuff like mental fatigue or self-talk i use some psychological model so i use different models to explain different things but i i i am uh, uh, i think it's better if you can find one model that can explain all that's an advance in science when you can find a single model that can explain all the phenomena, and and I and I I I really think that um, the psychological model, specifically, the effects of a, of a variety of factors on perception on the relationship between perception of effort and speed, is the key to understand endurance performance. Also, because when you guys pace yourself during a race, it's not like as you said, it's not like a one hundred meter you go all out. Uh, there are two big differences. One is that you basically you don't go all out in a <laughs> in a you pace yourself in an endurance uh, event, and pacing is a decision that you make. Yeah, it could it could become quite automatic if you try, you know, during trainings. But still, you have to make it automatic by taking decision. Okay, uh, what is the the pace I want to run this and try so that it becomes you know, easy for you to, but still, I mean, you, you look at your distance, you look at your watch. I mean, it's not something that it kind of goes by itself. So you need to take some decisions about it. And and and, and the other, I think, a very important uh, characteristic of endurance performance that people don't really, it's a very obvious one, but people don't uh, notice it, is that you have a lot of time to think. Your races last minutes, hours, days sometimes. So you have a lot of time to think. Therefore, the, the content of your thinking, and, not, and, and of course the perception, how you feel during the run, but even just the, the thoughts that you have, uh, both uh, you know, uh, deliberate and sometimes uh, you know, they just pop in your head. So they, they can have a very massive influence on, on performance. So by negating this, this characteristic, I think, uh, it's not going to enable you to explain performance properly. That's why I got very interested in, in the psychological side of things. However, there is also another important one, which is that there is now, and I think I was one of the first to, to, to challenge it in a, in, a, 
in a, in a, in a, in a, in an experimental way, if you like, uh, providing data. Because, for example, Tim Knox has been very critical of the traditional physiological model, but his reasoning was, ah, uh, uh, if the physiological model was correct, you couldn't do an end spurt or uh, you would die during a race, which, to be honest, I don't think there are good arguments. But we, we provided some evidence, and other people did, for example, that immediately after exhaustion, one of the tests that we do in the lab is time to exhaust. So we put somebody on a treadmill or a bike at a given speed that we tell, okay, now you, you cycle, you run for as long as you can. And the, the assumption has always been that when you reach exhaustion, assuming that you're highly motivated, of course, is because you have reached a physiological limit, either in terms of muscle fatigue that you cannot produce the speed anymore because your muscles or your central nervous system uh, fatigue, or because you run out of glycogen or some sort of energy source. However, we found that, for example, immediately after exhaustion, people can produce a much higher power or speed than the power at which they got exhausted only like one second before. And some other people did muscle biopsies, and they found that at exhaustion, there is still plenty of energy left in the muscle. So they actually calculated that at the end of the view to max test, and you know, if you try the view to max test, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you feel completely exhausted. I mean, no way, the feeling, that's important, the feelings that you cannot continue. But they measure how much energy was left at view to max, so 100% view to max, and they calculated that with that energy, you could, in that case of a cycling test, cycle, at 100% VO2 max, which for endurance is a very high intensity, for seven to eight minutes after exhaustion. So there is both a neuromuscular and the bioenergetic reserve when uh, you feel exhausted. So you reach a psycholo your psychological exhaustion, you, you reach the feeling of exhaustion before your muscles are truly uh, exhausted in a, in a physiological way. So that's why those are the basic um, reasons, I guess, for for developing this this uh, this new model. And then maybe you can ask me specific questions. Otherwise, <laughs> definitely. I mean, there's uh, there's plenty of questions I have, but there's two in particular that you brought up near the end of that one. So, yeah. um, first of all, uh, related to just how to even be able to to test this in research, which is that if you're doing um, uh, stuff to exhaustion, then as you say, it's mainly going to be people choosing to stop rather than they're at the point where their body can literally do nothing else. And and as we can see with the sprint finish, as soon as you see that finish line, you think you're exhausted or as soon as someone catches you near the end, suddenly you can take it up a notch. So it's not a physical limit. It is a mental limit there. But when you're examining or when you're designing these studies, um, how much does that affect it knowing that much as you're going to try and find motivated people to do them, that someone might just be thinking, you know what, I've got to go and pick up the kids in half an hour, so I'll, I'll just stop it now. Or <laughs> I, I did one minute more than last time, yes. so that's an improvement, so I can stop now. And yes. Rather than it genuinely being as hard as they can push. Yes, yeah, you're right. And, and this is one of the things I've, I guess, many physiologists don't... Uh, take care very much in, 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 in studies because you know, they deal with physiology, so they think. But when we deal with performance, we're dealing with behavior. Performance is a goal-oriented, motivated behavior. So you actually, when you're measuring performance, even in the lab, you're basically doing experimental psychology because you're studying behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you can take all this physiological measure, fine. But if you're measuring performance, you're doing a, a psychology experiment. So as you say correctly, you need to be very, very 
careful when you do design experiments to design it in a way, for example, that ensure that people do not, uh, for example, take a little bit of because they want to do well in the final sprint. So, and for example, I give you the, uh, I tell you how I did it in that study. So I gave them uh, monetary reward money, prize money, basically, uh, in uh, with Amazon vouchers uh, for the people that could last the longest in the time to exhaust you, not in the uh, how many how much power they did in the sprint. So if anything, probably this is a, a, a actually you know what I mean. If anything, the underestimation is in the the power that they could produce immediately after. Uh, so they were not motivated. I also didn't explain to them exactly what was the purpose of the study. So it's, it's kind of a mild deception. It's not a deception. You just don't tell them the, the, the whole truth. So you tell them what they're going to do, of course, from an ethical point of view is important, but you don't tell them specifically what is your hypothesis so that you do not influence them in advance because a placebo effect or expectancy effect is very powerful. So you want to, to, to control for that. And it is possible, you need to be careful. Uh, some other things, for example, that we do is the person that we, we tend to, uh, most of the time to give verbal encouragement. But of course, if the person, the researcher, provided the verbal encouragement doing a performance test, for example, as an hypothesis in, in his mind, it can bias. I mean, verbal encouragement can be very, very powerful. I mean, if you, if you, if you listen to Kipchoge, it's, it's probably the main difference between Mont, the failed Monza uh, sub two hour marathon and the, and the successful one in Vienna. If you ask him, he says one of the main factors is that in, in Vienna he had uh, spectators throughout the whole circuit providing him with, uh, you know, cheering him and giving him verbal encouragement. In Monza, I, I was there. There were only like a few hundred people on the street. So they were basically alone uh, by themselves, the runners, uh, for most of the circuit. So even at that level, verbal encouragement seems to be <laughs> important. But you can also screw up the experiment, right? So for example, what we do is either we do not give any verbal encouragement, or if you do, like most of the time we do that, we take uh, the, the person provided the verbal encouragement has no idea. It, that's all he does. It, it provides verbal encouragement. It doesn't know anything about the study. It doesn't know the hypothesis. It doesn't know which condition it is. It just comes in. And it, and it kind of provides uh, so that you do not uh, bias the the, uh, the 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 results. So you have to you have to be careful. But I think if you are, and again, this has been replicated now. Um, I think that that now there is solid evidence that you do not reach a, 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 your physiological limit, even if you are very motiva uh, motivated. Um, actually, my my in terms of competition, in terms of testing, uh, a lot of people get it this wrong. Um, it's not about because it's based on a theory it's called motivation intensity. So they think it's all about motivation. I, I guess also it's because another book that included my research a lot. It had a very nice title, but it doesn't really reflect my theory, which is how bad do you want it? It's not a matter of how bad do you want it. I think the level of motivation can be very important during training because when the 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 goal of what you're doing the the race you know winning a race let's say or, or doing your or finish a race or, or or do your personal best whatever is your goal when you're training often is quite distant so you know having the maintaining the motivation necessary for, especially to do kind of hard training session 
it, it could be hard. But doing a, you know, if you're a competitive runner in an important race, everybody is is willing to assert the maximal effort in order to win. Nobody, nobody. So you know what I mean? Actually, we call this willingness to assert effort. This That's the potential motivation. But in an important race, that's not the uh, uh, defining factor because everybody has the same level of potential motivation. Everybody is willing to assert the maximal effort in order to win the race. So that's not what differentiates the good Although would there be a subtle difference? You know, the person who consistently gets gold medal, get medals compared to the guy that consistently comes second or third, would there still be more of a psychological difference there? That the person who's always second to the other guy is going to kind of assume at the end that he'll still be second, and so that could even if they're uh, in the lab, you can test them to be just as fit yes, as each other. That's that, a that could be the the final thing. Yeah, that's a, it's like a different construct though in psychology, and which okay. I think it's a super important though. In fact, we are actually, I'm writing a chapter about the psychobiology of uh, pacing regulation, uh, in which I include this, um, and I've done some research actually with some colleagues in psychology. It's called self-efficacy. So it's your own judgment of your ability to do a task. Um, and that applies to any task. Of course, what you were talking about, for example, is, is your own judgment in the ability, I don't know, to be a certain guy. Um, which is based on a variety of, of, of factors, right? Um, but that's different from uh, motivation. Motivation is just how much, how bad do you want it? And, and mm-hmm. I, I think that there may be a situation where if you do not believe, and actually that's the motivation test theory too, if you do not believe that your maximal effort is going to, uh, for example, um, that you beat this guy, which is if your goal is to beat this guy and you believe that even your maximal effort is not going to be enough to beat that guy, actually the theory predicts that you may not, if, if you really believe you cannot, and that's the goal, you might not even push, okay, you're completely not motivated because you know, you know, you think, and maybe that's true, but you've, it's important what you think, is that your maximal effort will not be enough to reach the goal. But as soon as you are in the condition, I think in most in most conditions that's that's a, that you are you are motivated to give uh, to give a maximal effort because you will have a chance, even if you have just a chance to beat him, then you you will give maximal effort and as much as the other guy. So that's not what differentiates a good or a bad runner. What differentiates a good and a bad runner is the other basic, most important psychological variable in the psychological model, which is perception of effort. The problem is that people forget the the original meaning and the original way this this construct has been uh, defined and and utilized, which is is called is a psychophysical construct, which means is the relationship between the uh, psycho, which is the perception, the psychological dimension, which is the perception of effort in this case, and the physical, which is the physical stimulus for the perception, which in the case of perception of effort, the physical stimulus is the workload, for example, the running speed at which you are running. So the key to understand performance is is perception of effort. First, the relationship between perception of effort and running speed. So of course, I mean, (laughs) I can be super motivated, but 
me and you, I'm not a runner, clearly. You, I'm sure you, you're a decent runner, right? So if we go on a treadmill at 16 kilometers per hour, my perception of effort is going to be way higher than yours, okay? So, and that's, that's where, in, in the psychological model, that's where perception of effort is defined. Is the relationship between, it's not just perception of effort on, its, on itself, it's the relationship between perception of effort and speed. So mm -hmm. speed with perception of effort. But, and then the other, um, and of course, your level of fitness is going to be the main determinant of the perception of effort that you feel at a given speed. This is why training is the best way to reduce your perception of effort at a given speed. Again, people, it's, it's so obvious that people don't even think about it. But that's the key. Uh, because uh, you either reduce the, so, uh, the perception of effort at a given speed so you can actually keep the speed for longer and therefore use it in your race, or for the same perception of effort, you go faster. Anyway, your performance is improved, okay? But the key in endurance performance is not only the relationship between speed and perception of effort, for example, doing incremental test. It's also uh, how quickly the perception of effort increases over time when you keep the same speed. And actually, that's the key. I mean, if perception of effort didn't increase over time for the same speed, we could run like an ultra, from a purely psychological point of view, we could run an ultra at, you know, 95% of your two bucks because it's 19, it's just below 20, and I keep running 19. Okay, it requires a lot of motivation because it's a lot of effort, but I never reach a level of perception of effort, which is maximal. The problem that doesn't work like that, everybody knows. I mean, even if you keep the same speed or even if you slow down in a marathon, unless you slow down a lot, but even if you slow down a little bit, your perception of effort at the end of the marathon is way higher than at the beginning. So, and this is the key to understand endurance, is the fact that perception of effort increases over time uh, for a given speed. And therefore, how quickly it increases over time, of course, is going to determine when you reach your perception of maximal effort. So when you feel that, oh, I give it all, I cannot, this is, I give my best, I'm completely exhausted, that's how you feel. And therefore, it will, how quickly you reach that point will determine, for example, how long you're, gonna, you're going to, how quickly you're going to get exhausted at that speed. So it's an interplay between uh, the intensity relative to your, your fitness level, but also how quickly, so how, how it behaves over time during the race. And you can predict performance very, very well using perception of effort. But most importantly, because one can say, okay, Masama, I can also predict it with the lactate threshold. You know what I mean? Okay, I can say, okay, <laughs> I, I don't need the lactate threshold. I, I ask you, your speed at uh, RP 15 from 6 to 20. I don't know if you're, you guys are familiar with the board RPs can go from 6. Yeah, yeah, up to 21. Yeah, yeah. no effort, 220, which is maximal effort. 15 is like hard. Yeah. If I do an incremental test and I say, okay, I look at the speed at RP 15, I, I, I'm going to tell you, okay, you're a good runner, you're not, and, and I can predict your performance for example, in a, in a marathon or half marathon, 5K, 10K, easy. And I actually, there are no studies showing that, but I, I'm pretty sure that the prediction will be as good as speed at the lactate threshold. Actually, because the two are very <laughs> connected. But the key thing is this, is the perception of effort is not just a reflection of your physiology, 
Because if that was the case, I'd say, okay, Sam, you're just telling me the same story, but instead of speed LL trash, you're telling me speed RP15. No, the key is this. First, when you're pacing yourself, you don't have a lact lactometer <laughs> in your head. You don't regulate and you don't, uh, the, 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 what influences your thinking during the race, either positive or negative. For example, can I beat the guy or not? It's not you don't you don't have a lactic acid. Oh, my I have four millimoles. No, I cannot beat the guy. Oh, I have two. I can beat. No, you, you don't. How do you uh, make judgments about your ability to do to sustain, for example, that speed uh, until the end or to beat a certain guy? It's based on how you feel. It's based on your perception of effort. So for me, even if the two were um, one. The pure reflection of the of the physiology, I, I still think the perception effort is more important because that's the parameter that you use during a, a race. However, it's even more than that because while I have yet to see a physiological manipulation that changes performance independently of changing perception of effort, I never seen such a thing. No, because you'd notice it's harder or easier, and so when you come to your physiological effort. capacity, yeah. exactly, you also change your perception of effort. So, however, and that's the key, and I think that's where we, we can start the less theoretical maybe discussion and go into the okay, how can I use this to improve my performance? Is this is that if I change your perception of effort independently of the physiology, I can change your performance, either make it worse or make it better. So, and this is obviously gives you what's the practical implication of this, that everything that you guys have done in terms of training, nutrition, preparation for the race, blah, 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 uh, thinking in a physiological way, based on the physiological model, yeah, I need to increase my view to max, I need to increase my running economy, blah, 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 I need to improve my lactic clearance, all these things. Keep doing those because those things, although you have done them with the physiological model in your head, they're also going to improve your perception of effort at a given speed. And therefore, accord, uh, perfectly in line with the psychobiological model, all those things will improve your performance. Although I explain it in a different way, but it doesn't matter at the end of it. However, the psychological model, it, it, it gives also another thing. In addition to the things you have done thinking physiologically, you can do more other things which are specific to change perception of effort on the top of improving your fitness, improving your running economy, that will increase your, increase your performance further over and above what you have achieved so far purely based on your physiological model. That's... I don't know if I explain myself. No, that, that definitely makes sense. I think everyone listening can understand, obviously, all these things and how it applies in the real world. They might think, well, I can now do a particular speed session faster, so I'll be faster in the race. And then they have a race and it doesn't go better. Uh, and it's these other limiting factors. But just that concept that it's your perceived effort rather than your actual 
uh, effort level. So not necessarily the the amount of oxygen that you're using, but but your perceived effort, because those things will be linked. But that's also factoring in then how your brain is feeling about it all and, and, and what you're willing to do as well. So in particular, I'm sure people have noticed if they get a blister, for example, perceived effort goes through the roof. The actual mechanical energy required does not change really. But just because everything's harder, they're going to slow down, it'll be tougher. And also related to that, that as they do a longer race and they're choosing to pace at a slower intensity, even though that that slow pace will get harder and harder, the perceived effort will creep up. It's starting from such a low level and takes a lot longer to creep up that, that yeah, it makes sense that if you're looking at it just as a theory to describe all of that, that just thinking of it as perceived effort being the limiting factor, because that that is including the physical side and, and everything else as well. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to, to one other thing you mentioned there about uh, uh, how bad you want it and mm-hmm. that book by Matt Fitzgerald, because I actually interviewed him last month in episode yeah. 10. Oh, it's a lovely book. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's an excellent book. and I, I recommend it to a lot of people. But uh, you, you were saying there that it's it's more than just motivation. And, and one of the things he talks about in that book is the difference between extrins- extrinsic motivations and intrinsic. So having something that's a bit bigger than yourself, like if you're running for your country in the Olympics, if you're running to raise money for your sister who has leukemia or something like that, then you'll typically be able to push harder. And so the I suppose the perceived effort may be a little bit lower or just that your threshold of, of how much you're going to suffer will be higher. Yeah. So are you saying that that's less important or, or that again, it's just no, more at the margin? Well, yeah. No, I think it's important. Maybe I didn't explain myself. It, it, I think it applies, all, all, everything you're saying, I think it primarily applies, it has, an, for example, the fact intrinsic motivation, it's, let's say, better than extrinsic motivation. I think it applies um, for things that need, need to be done over time. So training which of course is gonna influence your performance. Mm-hmm. However, on the day of the race, so or, or on the day I, I do a performance test in my lab, for example, um, whether the reason is intrinsic or extrinsic, in, in, the, in the psychological model that I use, uh, which is called motivation intensity theory, is based on that. It doesn't matter as soon as whatever factor, intrinsic or extrinsic, that motivates you, justify a maximal effort so you can be you, you the maximal effort can be justified because you want to finish the london marathon and raise some money for charity or it could be because you are a, a kenyan runner that needs to you know i want to win uh, like a two hundred thousand dollars cash prize and i really want that and that's enough to justify my maximal effort in that in in that respect, it doesn't matter. As soon as um, one or the other justify the maximum effort, of course, especially over longer time, to sustain the motivation, to sustain this willingness to exert effort, there is a lot of evidence that intrinsic motivation is 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 more important. But it's more like a, yeah, over a longer period of time, it's more about consistency. But on the day, um, no, I I I. I so, so as, as soon as I'm equally motivated it. in terms of quantity of motivation, the quality of it, nah, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, is as I said, the, the relationship between perception of effort and speed. So let's say, if they say, Sam, if you if you beat Ian, yeah, um, 
I give you a million uh, euros, a million pounds, and same for you. Of course, we're going to be motivated to do our best. <laughs> but to be honest, <laughs> okay, you need to beat him at uh, running for as long as you can at 16 kilometers per hour. You know, I start running, even if I never run in my, I mean, I, I, I already know it's impossible, so I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even try, right? Even if, see, that's a difference between potential motivation and uh, effort that somebody actually exert. That's a difference. Because, for example, if I think that something is impossible, that even my maximal effort is not going to reach the goal, it's, uh, it's our tendency to avoid effort if it's not justified. So, for example, I know that I'm not going to beat you at that test. So even if I'm, you know, I'm willing to put the maximal effort into it because I am motivated as much as you, uh, I don't know what your salary is. My salary is okay, but it's not, you know, a million euros I, I love to have. It's going to mean a lot to everyone. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to give maximal effort. But as soon as I realize, and, and that's based on my perception of effort at that speed, that I'm, I will never, you know, outlast you. Then I, I will give up even before I reach my maximal effort. Okay. So, you know, after a couple of minutes, I look at you, you look fresh. It's like easy. I'm like, Ugh! I feel like uh, I'm already 19 and a half uh, in my <laughs> 6 to 20 scale. And I'm going to give up even before I give my maximal effort because I'm never going to beat you. So it's, it's the potential means what you're willing to do. But then it comes the, the judgment about your ability to accomplish a goal. And that's based primarily on the relationship between, let's call it in a simple way, speed and how much effort you feel to produce that speed. It's as simple as that. Do you want to run better than you've ever run before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Inside Tracker is an ultra personalized wellness platform that analyzes your body data and creates science backed action plans to help you reach your potential for better than ever endurance and performance. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering 25% off its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com slash endurance hour. Get Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. And just, just, to, just to delve into that a little bit more yeah. in, a, in a more precise way as well for people, yeah. which is obviously if something is clearly impossible, it's not going to yes. be motivating. If, if you're exactly. at the New York Marathon and you're your average runner, you're not motivated by the $200,000 for winning it because you know that's not going to happen. Exactly. But if it's, say, someone who's going for personal best and they're halfway through and suddenly that personal best is not looking, looking possible, they've slowed down a little bit, they realize they're not quite as fit as they thought they were. And so if that's their one motivator, and that goes away then they're obviously going to have probably higher perceived effort as well because they'll start feeling negative about it and they'll go slower so do do you think part of the importance there that's a a practical thing for people to take away as well is the importance of having multiple motivators and being able to flex them potentially during a race even for say an olympian like uh, you're aiming for the gold medal you realize that you're three minutes off the pace in the marathon, but you could still get third. So instead, you switch your your motivation to trying to get on the podium. Yes. And, and that ability to find something concrete that genuinely motivates you yes. rather than just saying, well, there's one one target and that's now not possible. So, you know, you see a lot of people, they'll drop out or they'll just walk it in when, when it gets yes. like that. Yes, yes. You did a lovely thing there, with, probably without knowing it, <laughs> but... There are all nice, fancy psychological terms for what you said. It actually did a combination of two things. One is called the uh, if-then strategy, 
which is something, for example, that um, is discussed in this book. It's quite sciencey and academic compared to endure and how bad do you want it? But you know, a, a, you know, somebody with a, a decent scientific background, the general knowledge can get some. It's called um, uh, wait, I can tell you, Carla Main is endurance performance in sports psychological theory and intervention. It's as I said, it's quite sciencey, but it has also some practical stuff, and it describes uh, the science, but also some of the practice of different psychological interventions and, and one of them okay one is goal setting so for example and i think especially with people that start um if you work with more beginners i guess people maybe they, they put them you know to higher goals so you need to have we know that a goal that is stretching you so it's motivational because it's not too easy but on the other end is is within your reach is within your capability otherwise it can become as you said you know it's if it's impossible and w- once you realize that attaining the goal is impossible. That's going to have a massive negative effect on your, on your motivation or the amount of effort that you exert in in the in the race or in training. But what you did there is interesting because a combination of this if then planning and goal setting. So it's like if then planning means preparing instead of having to think during the race, which is you're tired, you're fatigued, you're so it's, it, it may create mental fatigue. Maybe we discuss that later. So you don't want to think too much during the race. Yeah, you need to think in in, uh, in advance. Try to uh, either from experience or with a good coach, try to go through different scenarios, especially when things go go <laughs> go south, right? Um, and try to establish and f- find and then establish some strategies to solve that problem and practice as well, so that. You, it becomes almost an automatic when a problem uh, comes up, and they always do, right? Especially in ultra endurance races. Exactly. I was going to say, particular yeah. ultras, which is what yeah. I, I mainly work with people about. Exactly. Now. So you have this strategy, so you you know exactly what to do. You don't have to think about it. You get also sp- spending between brackets mental energy, um, which is not good. Um, and one of the strategy could be this one. So if in the middle of the race, let's say, I realized I cannot reach my, let's say, my primary goal. If that was the only goal, then a lot of people may even give up, just, you know, retire from the race. If that's not, not what you want, as you say, you can have a secondary goal, which can be your if-then strategy. If I realize that you could, it could be a bad day. I mean, you know, these things happen, right? And if I realize I cannot reach my goal, then I have a secondary goal, which will still kind of maintain some motivation for me to do as best as I can in, in that race. Um, so it's like a combination of goal setting and if-then planning, um, which is quite interesting. It's also an example of how very well-known, there's nothing new here in this, psychological strategies can be adapted and used in by endurance athletes and coaches to improve performance. So related well, you to do that, that already. Well, you do, I'm sure you do. Maybe you do that. Oh, definitely. No, no. I mean, yeah. it, I, but, I think like knowing said, it and doing it more systematically, it may even improve your, your, your practice possibly. I don't know. Yes. No, I mean, and these are, are not going to be brand new things to people, but it's sometimes just being able to realize them and actually use it rather than know it and still not benefit from it. So uh, how does you know this sound? My, oh, you know on. what's my favorite quotation? Mm-hmm. It's from Sherlock Holmes, or of the fictional character. Yeah. But I think it's valid in science a lot. <laughs> Even in sport often is this. 
is there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Sometimes we kind of overthink things <laughs> and, and, and we don't see what's clear in front of our eyes because we are like, and sometimes really um, uh, realizing something that once somebody tells you it's obvious, but you, you may not have thought about it. Sometimes it can be the most powerful uh, uh, thing that you can apply and do to, certainly that happened to me in terms of improving my research and explaining the phenomenon, which is endurance better, I think, but also for you guys to improve performance. Sometimes there are the obvious things that you don't think about that can make a massive difference. Even at, I mean, I work with some elite athletes, elite businesses, and sometimes you really say, why don't they, sometimes they really don't do some basic stuff that you would think, gosh, I assume that everybody does, and then you realize they don't. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's important not to, not to miss the obvious sometimes. And one of the things that you're mentioning there about lowering perceived effort or being able to put in more effort is effectively home team advantage. Like you said, with Kipchoge, he had a crowd, so that gave him more incentive. It made him more relaxed. It it, it made him enjoy it more. Uh, and there's, you know, it's not even difficult research. You can just look at any stats, basically, to see that home teams tend to win more when they've got yeah. the crowd behind them or when you've got the Olympics in your own country, you, that country wins more medals. So clearly, it's not that those people suddenly got fitter or that they um, were better. They just were willing to push a bit harder or maybe stayed a bit more positive or, or something similar to that. So oh, again, no, actually, a very think, obvious thing. I actually think that some of these factors is, is, is again, you, often people always interpreting motivational terms because it's easier to explain. But actually, for example, motivational self-talk, you will think, ah, the way it works, we found that it improves endurance performance significantly. And one may think by the name as well that, oh, it kind of make me uh, push out because it motivates me more. Actually, what we found actually, no, I mean, in both condition, the control and the self-talk, people push to their maximum, you know, they were willing to push to their maximum. What happens with the self-talk is their perception of effort was lower. So in a way, they were with the motivation of self-talk, which I think it works both because it has some positive, it adds positive content to your thoughts, which I said, you know, there, there are plenty during endurance. But also I think it may actually work just because it, reduces or eliminates your negative force that comes up naturally, especially when you get tired or in pain. Or so, But it reduced perception of effort. In a way, kind of they convinced themselves in a, at a cognitive level that they were more capable than what they thought when they were not using self-talk. And therefore, there is a, as I said, this connection between perception of effort and perceived ability, they are very connected to each other. Perception of effort is more like the raw sensation. But then when you think about it, when you use that raw sensation and, uh, for example, your, the time, you know, your pace and, for example, how much distance is left to the end of the race, you put all these things together and then make, you make a judgment, with, uh, which is a, a complex psychological concept, about your own ability to accomplish the goal. And so they are very tightly interconnected and it works not only, okay, I reduce my perception of effort, therefore I increase my perceivability. It, it, it works both ways. So if I increase my perceivability, I reduce my perception of effort. So a lot of these things, that psychological things that work uh, during, um, again, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about training, I'm talking about the one-off endurance competition, okay? 
is actually it's not that they increase motivation they reduce perception of effort that's how they improve by distraction by cognitive process you know the, but they reduce perception of effort and vice versa anything that increases your perception of effort you were mentioning the blisters the pain actually probably the pain yeah it's painful and I guess the blister may get so painful actually that really unbearable but let's say, let's say that you don't it's not unbearable pain so you're tough guys it shouldn't really affect you it does affect your performance why because it nags you it, it, it draws your attention. It, it, you have to inhibit because when you are in, when you have painful feet, your natural response is to stop running, right? I mean, even stop working probably. And you guys maybe, oh, I need to run for another two days with the bloody blister. That's not a natural response. Your natural response is to stop when you have that pain. So you have to engage a cognitive process, which we call uh, response inhibition. You have to inhibit the natural response to quit because it's painful. And inhibiting a natural response is very mentally demanding. Indeed, we did a study uh, on running exactly on this. So we compared a cognitive task, half an hour cognitive task before the running test, which was it didn't require um, response inhibition, versus same half an hour of this cognitive task on a computer, but this one required response inhibition for only half an hour. And then we did a 5K time trial. And when you engage for only half an hour in a response inhibition cognitive activity, your, so I wrote it down here, on that one was 5.6% um, redu uh, reduction in performance. So it, it was worse by 5.6%. Just to give you a comparison, a similar, okay, wasn't complete, exactly the same, but that 5.6% is very similar actually a bit larger than the effects that we measure in another study of uh, inducing muscle damage on running performance. So having muscle damage, you know, muscle soreness, we did 100 drop jumps, and then we tested people uh, two days after when they have CK elevated muscle soreness. Having muscle damage reduced performance by 4%. Uh, doing half an hour inhibitory um, uh, cognitive activity reduced performance by 5.6%. Okay, they might be different, but you know what I mean? I'm not saying it's more, but similar. So I don't I don't think before I started to do this research and talk about the psychological model, they, you, nobody would have thought that something like your the nature of your thinking could affect performance as much as muscle damage in your legs. Would you? <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't I don't. have guessed it would be that much, but it, but then again, as an ultra runner, I do see how the mental side of it is the determining factor. I mean, it, it, I, I give the example of say someone running a marathon and and it goes a bit wrong and you slow down, you lose a minute a mile or something like that for the last yeah. few miles. In an ultra, if your mental side of it just drops out because you're fatigued mentally or you've lost motivation or similar, you can just end up death marching in and be losing 20 minutes a mile, 30 minutes a mile for many, many miles. So the, the percentage slowdown is much, much bigger there and it can yeah. be for a much longer time because also then you can see how much is ahead of you. And it's one thing in the marathon to say, oh, there's two miles left grind it out it's another thing to say there's 10 hours left uh to, to think about just how much more you'll have to try for that is really difficult yeah, yeah. and that actually links to a, another idea which is 
is there a finite amount of mental energy that you ha- that people have to run? Uh, and so let's say you're, you know, you're doing a longer race and there's going to be more suffering. So therefore, do you need to build that mental reserve up more? Uh, is there a point where you just break? Uh, and does that vary? And can you change it? So a lot, lot yeah. of different questions. But basically, is there yeah, a yeah. No, finite no, no, amount no. of mental energy? Yeah, that yes, yes. I mean, it has been a very popular theory that these effects like mental fatigue are explained by, okay, you have a, as you say, finite reserve of mental energy and uh, this energetic resource. And therefore, if you spend it, for example, doing a mental task, then you have less for another task that requires, for example, responsibility, effortful tasks, including physical tasks. Um, But actually, okay, I won't go into the science, uh, but even in psychology where this theory originated has been debunked. So it's a, it's a, as a metaphor to explain to people, okay, fine, because it's easy. People understand this in an easy way. So maybe, you know, if you're a coach with maybe with a, talking with a, an athlete that doesn't have a, a good scientific background, it could be a good analogy to use to com- maybe convince him to do some of their work that then you know is going to benefit him. But scientifically, it's not correct. Physiologically, it's not correct. It's actually, um, the brain consumes a lot of energy. But interestingly, unlike the muscles, for example, I, I, don't, I, I measure the energy expended on my brain doing absolutely nothing, complete rest, completely relaxed. And then I measure the, my energy consumption on my brain when I'm doing something mentally very hard you won't be able to measure any difference in energy expenditure because the brain is is always active and consuming a lot of energy and the extra activity of some neurons or some, some neur- many neurons in a cortical area or some different cortical areas to to do a certain cognitive task compared to the energy expenditure going on in the whole brain it, it cannot even measure you cannot measure it it's tiny so there's no an energy limitation in in the brain is more like from a physiological point of view, it seems is more like a, a, an, an, accu- uh, an accumulation of substances that are produced, uh, spe- specifically adenosine that are produced when you engage in mentally demanding tasks. So when, when the neurons are, are active because you are, let's say you're coping with your blister, blister pain for like three days and you have to cope with this, so this is a mentally demanding activity, what happens, this adenosine will build up more in your brain than if you didn't have to cope <laughs> with the blister. And what this adenosine does is kind of, it kind of fatigues your neurons. It makes your neurons less responsive. So uh, it's not so much uh, that you run out of energy, is that you, you produce more substances that then have a negative effect on your own brain. Some people think it's, it may be a, a protective effect. So the the neurons are very active, produce this substance. So they it's like a negative feedback to control that they don't stay too active for too long kind of thing. But the result basically is, is this, let's say, mental fatigue, which during a task, it, it manifests itself as an increase in perception of effort. And interestingly, I think I want to say something about because ultra, as you said, you are a lot into ultra. So a lot of ultra races, which is something I'm, I started to study. I'm so interested in this. You have the problem of sleep deprivation, sleep restriction. And actually, okay, sleep is a very complex thing, but one of the main mechanisms through which sleep impairs 
cognitive also seems physical performance. Endurance performance is by increasing perception of effort. And this effect is also caused by accumulation of adenosine. In fact, a theory of sleep is that we sleep because during the day we are more chronically active, we accumulate adenosine. Adenosine makes us sleepy. We go to sleep, so we reduce the metabolic activity. We kind of reabsorb, let's say, the, the adenosine. We metabolize the adenosine. So then when we, we wake up, we are fresh, and then adenosine accumulates in the day. You get sleep, you go to bed. Um, sleep is more complex than that, but it's, it's clear that adenosine plays a big role. So it seems that this substance, it, it's, it's implicated both in the negative effect of not sleeping during the race, and also the negative effects of uh, uh, this mental exertion for, for hours, days, because even just running requires mental exertion, okay? Unless you do it very easily. But, you know, maintaining... Even just hiking, if, if you hike for five days nonstop, it's, it takes a lot of effort to not sit not down physical, and Not physical, also mental. Yes, because it's, You're starting so, to push. So you, you're going to develop mental fatigue a lot of people think the mental fatigue is the fatigue induced by cognitive tasks because for example that's how, how i do my study but that's just because i want to isolate it but when you do a physical task even if you call it physical task the physical task is a mental and a physical task so you're going to develop physical but also mental fatigue just by running for a long time and then if you run with the blister if you run in a bad mood if you run a use in a negative uh, way because you see the person you want to beat is always better than you is that's gonna build this 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 mental load that will re- produce even more mental fatigue and will make your performance even worse so it's like a, a vicious cycle that you have to try to break and for example techniques like uh, imagery or or motivational self-talk or even pharma let's say pharmacological technique like caffeine caffeine works is it can improve your endurance performance because it blocks adenosine so it works both for the lack of sleep and also the mental fatigue so i think how to use the psychological needs but also how to use caffeine over many hours days in an optimal way and also super interested in this how to decide to pace your sleep if i'm planning a study on this so because when you sleep, you don't run, and therefore you lose time, right? And 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 but but if you don't sleep, then when you run, your perception of effort is, is higher. You run slower, so it's like a very delicate balance, right? But it seems to me that most of you guys just try to sleep as little as possible. So I want, and also I wonder whether it's it's okay to okay, okay, I don't sleep the first night, or sleep very little the first night or two. Then the third night, I'm completely not. I'm gonna sleep more, or, or is it better? So is it better to do like that, or is it better to do sleep a little? Uh, so two hours every night instead of not sleeping the first night and sleeping four hours the second. So we have no idea about the 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 what are the best strategies to pace not just your race but your sleep. And I think it's gonna it, when we understand this, um, it's gonna be super useful for the ultra, especially for the ultra endurance, oh, particularly for like two hundred milers, the, the the really long ones that are multiple yeah. days of nonstop. And exactly. I think that that's a question where I get asked that quite a bit when when I'm training people for those distances, which is, what is the best way to sleep, and how do you train for it? Because it seems that the sleep deprivation is not something you can train. You can improve physical fitness and things, but uh, if you just uh, sleep less, uh, can can uh, you actually improve that? Uh, 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 ah. <laughs> We don't know. Okay. And I've been working with some of the top 
like Tom Bolke, some of the top, because I'm in a, in a NATO research group on mental fatigue. So I've been working with some top sleep scientists that've been studying sleep deprivation in pilots and you know in the Navy in the really uh, French, American, Belgian, so a really amazing group of people, especially military, of course. Um, yeah, and there is this thing that oh, you cannot train sleep deprivation, uh, but it's based on um, studies where basically you do chronic sleep restriction and it, it seems to accumulate, you get worse and worse. Or people that change shifts and stuff, it, does, it doesn't seem to. However, and we are about to, to submit and hopefully publish soon a case study. It's only a case study for now, but I've applied for some money to do the actual study. But we did um, a, a, just a, a trial. I call it sleep deprivation training. And it's basically inter, it's intermittent sleep deprivation. So basically, on Sunday, in this case, on Sunday night, once a, so once a week, and with six days in between, uh, he didn't sleep, and actually, and then he trained on, on purpose in a condition of sleep deprivation, once a week. And again, it's only one person. We don't, you know, scientifically means nothing, right? But we we seem to f- uh, find some improvement, and also during the race itself, we did some some simulation in the lab. Also during the race itself, what he noticed that. The, the we call it sleep latency, the urge to sleep, the feeling that, oh, I really need to sleep now, it came much later than it used to be. So the problem is that people, they did, the, the, the studies did not, it, it was, it, they didn't give any reco- enough recovery. It was not intermittent enough, I think, to be tolerable first, not to have uh, a, a, a chronic accumulating negative effect, and give enough uh, time for the brain to recover, adapt, recover, adapt, recover, adapt, like, like normal training. So what we notice is that if you do that once a week, that you don't sleep, and then you train in a sleep-deprived state, uh, at least in this subject, we didn't have any symptom of overtraining, we didn't have more injuries. We, so it's, it's, um, it's a challenge, you know, <laughs> once a week, but it doesn't seem to... If you do it intermittently that way, it doesn't seem to have uh, negative effects. Again, it's only one person, it's an idea, but uh, you know, we may do the study, it may turn out that it's not trainable, I don't know. But uh, there's no actually strong, the, the evidence on which a lot of people say it's not trainable is not the right evidence to test that hypothesis. So let's let's be more hopeful that maybe um with some, if, if i can get this money from the minister of defense here in italy to do the study and maybe we may be able to find a way to train uh, sleep deprivation which is going to be beneficial to soldiers but also to to ultra endurance runners they do this um this long oh, event definitely and that, that's something i know a lot of ultra runners would be interested in and and just to find out what would be the best protocol because i'm sure there's a lot of different ways to, to test that and see what would work but <laughs> we, i don't want to go down that that rabbit hole too much because i, I yeah. want to be mindful of your time and there's a I couple of other tactical only, questions i want to ask no, it's as well. right it's right <laughs> um, i know i to be honest you know i it's a way for me to interact with with the public also i I love engaging with people like you guys on the field. You know, I, I find it stimulating and makes me think. Also, I think it improves my science as well. It's not just uh, 
communicate uh, science communication yeah you guys helped me as well and um, so I, you know I, i'm happy to talk but the uh, okay the protocol we used um is once a week with you know no no once a week random yeah because once a week with seven days you know uh once seven days every say every sunday night you don't sleep or every saturday night you don't sleep and then you go early in the morning you do a long run and, and i've definitely seen with, with people training for these things that there's not one size fits all way of, of doing it within the race as well whether they've tried to train for sleep deprivation or not that it some people can sit down for for 15 minutes and get little naps some people will lie down they just eyes are open they can't sleep because their body's so hyped up and so there's a there's some individual variation but i think finding yes, better yes, protocols yes. for that would would be yes. very useful i think yeah. it's also useful and this is what the soldiers do anyway to it could be like a you know a build-up uh race or, or 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 you make you know you create this situation even just once or twice just to to have a, a, an idea how you feel when you are sleep deprived and you have to run in a sleep deprived state, I think is going to be beneficial because you gain experience instead of feeling it for the first time. <laughs> during mm-hmm. race. However, so but for that you just need to do it once or twice. It's probably more than enough to have enough experience. However, that's not, and that's what, for example, soldiers do before going into into theater as, as they call it into into the real operation. They do some exercises. Maybe the last three, four, five days that they sleep very little, and that's useful. You know, they 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 get a feeling of how they're gonna be in the real. But it's like nobody will say, "Ah, okay, you do five high intensity interval training session, five session in a row, and then you're gonna perform well in a race." Okay, you're gonna know how it feels to do high intensity running, but to train, you need to do it for a longer time with enough recovery period in between. And and for sleep training, nobody's done it that way. So again, I don't have science to to back it up. I only have this case study. It may may not mean anything. It's just an idea. But if you guys want to try, uh, <laughs> nobody's stopping you from doing it. But it's it's um, of course monitor your level of fatigue. So if you see that if you start seeing that you're getting overtrained by doing sleep deprivation once a week then maybe it's time to stop and 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 uh, but if you don't get overtrained um, you can re- recover because what happens is that after the night that you have the sleep deprivation is a natural thing that happens which is called recovery sleep so you sleep either more or even the, for the same amount of time you go into in, in in the deep phases of sleep more quickly so you actually the day after you recover quite fully actually so you're gonna be cranky that that the day after you haven't slept, but then the rest of the week you're gonna be fine. So, so for, to take it down to a, a shorter distance as well, and back to kind of marathons and half marathons, because a lot of people listening are gonna be more interested in that side of things as, as well as the the crazy ultra end of the scale. <laughs> um, what what are some of the takeaways of, of how can you in the real world? actually improve your ability to uh i suppose dial in your perceived effort and other than just getting fitter which will obviously lower that perceived effort what can they do to be less fatigued going into a race and in particular this was one of the the main things here you know in that last couple of weeks before race how can they still get some gains here even though they're not really going to get any physically fitter so Mm -hmm. things like uh, making sure that work isn't too stressful so they're not going to be mentally drained and stressed out Are, are there is, is that, first of all, 
uh, yes. a good piece of advice yes. and then also, what other things could they yeah, do yeah also okay so in a kind of more kind of longer build up to a race i think is to make sure that you regulate your for example your recovery periods uh you know the amount of tapering that you're gonna do not purely based on kind of physiological markers right um and not purely based on the need for muscle recovery which obviously is important because actually i did a study that again muscle fatigue is, is not the limiting factor but if you run with fatigue muscles your perception of effort is higher so um but basically and this to be honest you should do it all the time during training but even more importantly i guess during the, the last couple of weeks before a, an important race is that you should use some uh, so-called kind of a, a training monitoring techniques that are psychological in nature. So, and there are two primary ones which are well um, researched. And I mean, they tried blood tests, double mass, they tried everything physiological to try to find a marker of overtraining. None, none work, none. The only, the only things that work at the moment, at least, are either like a mood assessment. So, and I suggest you should do it at least once a week. There are, um, for example, uh, the profile of mood state has been around for ages, uh, but there's a lot of research suggesting that when you see alterations in the profile of mood state, there is a, a shorter version called Brunel mood scale. You can even go online. There is an online thing that you just put your answers and it gives a score. And uh, I'll make sure I'll put that in the show notes for people so they can yeah. look that up and I'll just yeah. get, get the details from you for that. Yeah. And um, so that once a week, it's a good way to, to monitor your uh, your uh, mood. And basically it's called uh, normal. You have a, a so-called iceberg profile. So all the negative moods like depression, tension are low and your positive uh, mood uh, subscale which is vigor so that you feel energetic is high and what happens is when you start to get overtrained it goes the, the vigor <laughs> goes down and uh, uh, some if not all of the negative mood uh, subscales they go up so it kind of it flattens your iceberg so when you see your iceberg flattening is you can do a really a graph you know you can make a graph of this when you see your iceberg flattening be careful because you might get so do you mean like your, your peak level of, of just physical energy and vigor there, that when that, that seems to feel a little bit lower, that's, yeah, but, uh, that's, so, that's something that's correlated with this? Yes, but also you start to feel you know, more sadder or more confused, more nervous. So there are a variety of more angry, less, you, you know, you can, you, you can control your behavior less. All these kind of signs or irritability, and also, again, people react in a different way. But this is a very comprehensive mood assessment so um it's gonna catch the changes uh, even uh, between individuals uh, some people may react in a negative way become more angry than others others may become more depressed than but you will see basically some movement up in the negative mood dimensions and the, there's only one positive mood dimension in this questionnaire which is vigo and that will go down and that's a sign that you are over training probably is a too much of a word because to be overtrained, you know, is a rare thing, unfortunately, because it can ruin your career. But you can certainly get into this non-functional overreaching. It's like a mild overtraining syndrome, if you like. But the important thing is that basically we call it overtraining because that's but it's basically a chronic fatigue syndrome. And although, of course, it could be induced by the stress of training, 
let's not a brain level training is a is a effort demanding thing as much as I know we're dealing with the shit that happens in your life. A brain level, even neurobiologically, in terms of cortical areas, isn't the same. So you may get overtrained, not just because of too much training, which the, the, the word implies, but it could be the psychological load, not the training load that you have maybe in your life that might add up to the training load and make you overtrain so but this works for both both uh, the mood alteration works both for if you have problems uh, outside training but also if you train too much you also have these uh, alterations the other one is which i think is also useful anyway also for coaches but i think can be applied very well with uh, especially with endurance is uh, to monitor what we call session rp so it's like perception of effort, but it's a more practical thing. So you basically ask at the end, we say you take a shower so that you are not affected too much by the last bit of your training. You take a shower and then you just on a scale, zero to 10, similar, but just zero to 10 scale, but it's an RP scale. You say, okay, how hard basically was this training session? And then you can also multiply that number by the duration of the training session. You'll have an overall training load metric. Uh, but in terms of uh, monitoring your fatigue and therefore in the tapering kind of few weeks before a competition, what is crucial is, I think, if you can also use a heart rate monitor, again, this has to be validated more, but based on my study, it seems uh, that if you have an increase in heart rate and an increase in RPE, a session RPE, basically means you're pushing harder. That's why the RPE goes up. And it's normal. Of course, it's going to, you know, if you do hard training session, that's going to increase your load also psychologically. So you need to manage that. But it's a normal response. Okay, your session RP is higher because you're pushing harder. You go faster. You push harder during the training session. When you start to get, when you start to get, you should be very worried, is when your RPE increases more than the heart rate, or even worse, the RP goes up and the artery goes down. So when so the, it feels harder, but your body is just not saying it's actually working as hard. Or even what sometimes actually when you get or really less. Pain, you yeah. actually see that the artery doesn't go up. I mean, with I don't know with runners, but with cyclists we see that um, quite often that they they they. I mean, they are pushing, so they. You say, oh, you sh-, especially in those days when people were prescribing training based on artery a lot. And people say, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, to get my heart rate up. I can't. Is that because they feel that they're going hard? So when you see this, it's called RP to heart rate ratio basically increasing, then it's usually a sign that you are, get, you are mentally fatigued. So, again, very simple tools that you can use all the time, but especially crucial, I think, in those last few weeks because then you really want to get um, – to be in a, you know, the profile of mood state should be really good. This, the uh, heart rate RPE ratio shouldn't go up. So RPE to heart rate ratio should go up, if anything, even down. And, um, and then, and then, yeah, you'll be, you'll be ready for, for the race. Of course, you also need to, uh, you can use strategies just the day of the race, for example, to, you know, if you can, uh, especially if you're an amateur and you don't have a, 
try maybe to find uh, like a lot of people do you know the, the wife the son the friend for example to don't take care of the logistics you know so that you can relax and don't have to think about driving or you know dealing with or need, need to get to the hotel and you know try to unload this kind of trivial thing to to other people because you know it, everything adds up also it's very important that's Morisi said easier said than done is the sleep before the day of the race because sleep deprivation often we are, we are anxious we don't sleep well the day before the race a lot of people are like that so and that will so therefore you'll have some sleep restriction okay and that in itself will have a negative effect on performance on the, on but the you're saying of, it's mainly, mainly the week before, not the night before the doesn't matter before, too much. Even, yeah. No, the, well, I mean, if you're really anxious, you might not sleep well the entire week before. But usually the day before the race is when you typically, uh, you know, you just hype up and worry, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if, there is a lot of research showing that the day before the race, a lot of athletes don't sleep very well. So obviously, no, but that research also shows, doesn't it, that that doesn't really affect performance as long as they've been sleeping well for the period before that. I talk about the banking, the sleep kind of thing. Uh, so not just banking, but just having normal sleep, and, and as long as you're sleeping well in the say the week before, it doesn't affect your performance if just the night before so, is bad sleep. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, a, a mild sleep restriction in itself might not have a massive effect on endurance. Because, for example, you know, when we do this study, we, we completely sleep-deprived people, for example. And then we see a reduction in endurance performance. However, that's what these people don't think, because all these studies are done with short endurance tests afterward, uh, is that being sleep-deprived or even sleep-restricted, so even not sleeping well the night before the competition, it exacerbates mental fatigue. So the two things interact with each other. So if you are sleep restricted or sleep deprived, okay, you are less, um, uh, you're not in an optimal condition. It might not affect your mm-hmm. performance very much, but you're not in an optimal condition. But when you then engage in a mentally demanding task, including racing, then you will develop during the race especially if the race is long. So if you do a test that lasts 10, 15 minutes, yeah, you're not going to see anything. But if you do like a, a marathon or a ultra marathon, even, you know, you, you're going to develop significant mental fatigue during the race. So at the end of the race, you're going to be mentally fatigued because you've been racing for an hour. You know what I mean? Oh, and, oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it, it takes, like you said, physical and mental effort think, to keep going. They feel yeah. tired. They think it's the physical fatigue. Of course, you're higher perception of effort at the end of a marathon is 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 in, in part due to your physical fatigue. But uh, people think, oh, it's all physical fatigue. No. Believe me, again, I, I, it's an educated guess, okay? But based on my studies, the fatigue that you feel, let's say, at the end of a marathon is going to be 50-50 because it's, it's going to be the muscle fatigue but also the mental fatigue. They, they, they act on the same thing, which is this perception. So you cannot distinguish them. What, what you feel is that, oh, it feels harder to run. You, you cannot say, you don't know because it's, it's because of the muscle or because of the my brain. doesn't matter. You feel, you feel this just harder to run. You cannot differentiate mental and physical just by your own feeling. And um, so, but the, the, so what I say is it may interact, especially during long races, 
uh, and therefore you may develop men more mental fatigue during the race when you are not well, if you have not slept well the day before the competition. So good sleep hygiene, uh, you know, um, especially before long races, I think is, is important. Even if the experiments on the short race, short race, short duration test in the lab, they don't show much of a, of a problem with the sleep restriction because I think in a marathon, when it lasts more than an hour, races that last more than an hour, I think it may be an issue actually, even, even just poor sleep the night before. Um, so what I was saying, of course, then, as I said, uh, psychological techniques, there are plenty. I mentioned motivation, self-talk, if then planning, goal setting, we mentioned, uh, for example, people, um, uh, focus of attention. So, um, because there may be stages in a race where you, you want to dis distract yourself. So from how you feel so that you, um, uh, as soon as you can keep regulate the pace, for example, if you have a pace, so that's, for example, that's why they think the pace may have a cognitive benefit, not just, uh, because you can, you know, I don't have, and, you know, I trust the pace in front of me. I don't need to keep watching my watch and feeling, you know, checking how I feel. I just follow the guy. And then actually be, it's called a kind of cognitive drafting. I think Alex Hutchison gave it this uh, fancy name. And you may even be, you may have to distract yourself and that may reduce your perception of effort. However, when you need to, for example, make important pacing decisions, especially for them, well, depends, but usually it's more in the second half of the race, yeah, when uh, every race is different. But most of the time, the, the things start to get interesting in the second half, right? And, and uh, then, of course, that's different because you need to listen to your body uh, because because that's important to take the decision. What kind of decision you have to take in terms of pacing? Because if you if you screw up, then of course you you may have a, make a bad pacing decision, completely ruin your your race. So and again, so uh, when and to, on what to focus your attention during a race. So there is for that I'm not a psychologist, so you need to find a good sports psychologist or maybe the coach can you know learn a little, some more about these techniques and teach them to 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 the athletes and there are a variety and again everybody's different so some people may prefer one or the other or they may be different depending on the situation uh, but there is a lot of literature now showing that um, they, they really improve performance a lot um, the other one is I mentioned caffeine the, the strategic use of caffeine I think not so much for half marathon, marathon 10K, because, I mean, that's enough to take a good dose before you start. But in the ultra endurance, I think how to distribute the dose of caffeine over several, many hours and days is, is we don't know yet what's the best way to do it, but certainly would help. Um, so avoid mental fatigue, psychological strategies. And caffeine, I would say, these are definitely the three things that you can do over and above what you already do. They have massive um, uh, science to, to back it up, basically, that they work. Then there are things which are a bit more experimental. Uh, one is this brain stimulation. Although, uh, even if you can get it to work, um, I think it, it wouldn't work for marathon ultramarathon because the effects on, on the brain last for no more than an hour. So, so okay. what, what kind of stimulation do you mean? Then? Uh, 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 direct current, transcranial direct current stimulation. Okay. So for anything less than an hour, 
done in a certain way. And to be honest, the commercial devices that they sell, they don't do the, the, the way that, for example, some of us have, have seen to be, um, have found to be effective, but it lasts only an hour. So, uh, you know, anything more than a fast marathon, basically, uh, sorry, fast half marathon is, 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 doesn't. Okay, <laughs> that that definitely sounds like a quirkier one there. Yeah, and then of course this this research I've been doing with the with the military about brain endurance training, which I'm sure you want to hear hear something about. De exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, again, I don't want to um to to keep you here too long, but I did want to talk about that, and then I had yeah. one other question to round things off. But yeah, in terms of of how you can train your brain to be able to take on more and to be tougher, basically. Um, how practical is that? And also, how miserable is that? Because I think that's the, the other side of it, from what I understand, that it's not much fun at all. No, but it depends how you do it. For example, Alex did it in a very... <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, a lot of training sessions can be miserable. I mean, they're not all... True. Um, so, okay. So the concept is basically to increase the workload during training on the brain because I mean every time you train you're training the brain as well so it goes without saying hopefully after all this long discussion so you're already training your brain every time you do a training session um especially if it's a you know a, a difficult a hard one that either because of the intensity or because of the length of it the duration of it uh, so basically every time you train and your your natural response is don't do this <laughs> <laughs> and you keep doing that, you are training your brain, okay? However, there may be techniques, and I think this is actually extremely, it could be possibly, a, I wouldn't say a game changer, but big benefit, especially to runners. Because you guys, compared to cyclists, for example, you don't train as many hours as cyclists. No, you we don't. can't, no. <laughs> because you can't, because of musculoskeletal uh, stress, you, you just can't. But especially, I'm talking about, you know, very high level, you know, people that have time in their hands. You know, if you take a professional runner and a professional cyclist, they spend way more time training than you guys, simply mm -hmm. because they can and you can't. So, or for example, for the fragile athlete, from a musculoskeletal um, point of view, so that has already uh, basically too, actually, sometimes too close to the limit of the of the of the physical training load it can sustain from a musculoskeletal health point of view. So the you know the amount of mileage and and and, and the kind of speeds that he or, or she can do without getting the the injuries. Some people this this limit is as you know is quite individual, right? I mean there are people that are more fragile than others. So when you reach that, it may take a long time. So you know you may not need brain endurance training for. But then, and I think runners reach that way before other endurance athletes. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying it may be very important for runners. Once you reach that point, then I think instead of, oh, okay, I risk the injury, but I need to get better so I increase my training load, this is what they do. But then, and then you risk the injury, and you can be as fit as you like, but if you're injured, you're not going to win a race, right? Then it may be that adding some of these techniques of that I call brain endurance training, it may be a way to overload yourself, make some further gains, but without stressing your musculoskeletal system. And uh, basically, there are many ways of, of doing it. Of course, unfortunately, 
in terms of uh, running because you run outside. <laughs> uh, but some of these things you can do and cognitive tasks, for example, while you're running on a treadmill. But I know you guys don't. You don't like no, it, that. it's uh, I think it, whenever people are told there's something that can improve, they're they're willing to like you yes. said, do have a session yes. that maybe isn't as actually, much fun. We, yeah, we have developed actually an app and a system, it's not just an app uh for the military, because the military they do a lot of train marching, running outdoor. So it's like it's based on your phone, then you have uh Bluetooth uh earphones, and then you have like a flicker button on um, here on your index finger. <laughs> and basically, you run, You can run outside in a park. And basically, uh, these are cognitive tasks. But is, in the lab, we use uh, computer. And again, you can do that, for example, if you're running on a treadmill. They give you visual stimuli, and you have to respond to stimuli. You know, there are a variety of cognitive tasks. Stoop task, flanker task, uh, ASCPT task. Doesn't matter. As soon as it's de mentally demanding, um, and you do it for a, you know, a, you know, half an hour or more, you're going to get mentally fatigued. So it's anything basically that's making you think and making your brain work a bit more while also exercising, but without yes. presumably allowing yourself to back off on the exercise so you don't slow yes. down. Yes. Um, but of course, this is the, the kind of thing that you, you're going to combine uh, in this way, at least uh, during your kind of slow or mid, no, you're not going to do it during, you know, a, a very high intensity runs. Okay. Because again, I'm not saying, nobody said that you should substitute the normal training with it. This is just an additional training mode, if you like. Because, of course, when you want to maximize the effect on your, let's say, on your view to max, you need to go fast. You need to give the stimuli to your muscle, to your cardiac muscle. So in those cases, you don't want to be mentally fatigued. You may even want to take maybe caffeine before the training session if you're tired so that you can push yourself during the training session. Because that training session is for, let's say, for your body. But if you want to overload not just the not the muscle and, and the heart, but the brain, you can add, especially to, as I said, slow or moderate intensity running, this additional load during during the, 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 the running. And now, because we have this app, it's not commercial, unfortunately, but if there is a hedge fund manager that listens to your postcard wants to invest could, something. Um, could it even be as simple as maybe you're giving yourself some maths problems to do in your head? Math like problem, that? yeah. The, what we found uh, it works is um, uh, keeping things in your what we call working memory. So we did a study actually with the soldiers. It's actually a test. We call it cognitive motor interference test. And um, basically it's, it's a five minutes all out running test. That they did it normal. Then we did a test uh, where you have uh, you are told uh, words in five minutes, same duration. And then at the end of the period, you have to in ninety seconds you have to say as many words as you remember. It's, a, it's called a working memory task. And then we did it at the same time. When they did it at the same time, the running performance reduced because they were trying to go as fast as they can. But they they went. And also the memory was reduced. So it's called this cognitive motor interference, which also proves nicely that the, the cognitive and the physical are very interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. So, but for example, like um, you could have maybe something, you record some, some, some words in a, in a, and then and you have to try to remember the words during the run. And then at the end, uh, maybe you ask your daughter or something, okay, or, may, or you can do it yourself just write down all the words to remember you can measure your performance in in that working memory task things like that and but of course we also have this thing that you you listen to stimuli so 
So you have uh, audio to stimuli. You have you respond while you are running, pushing the on this flick button on, or sometimes not pushing. You you inhibit your response uh, by not pushing the the flick button. Um, and this is a way to do it. The other way is if you do intervals. Uh, again, we did it also with soccer players and also with the military. Is during the resting periods, the recovery periods between intervals, instead of um, recovering both mentally and physically, you recover physically, but you do a cognitive task, so you don't recover mentally. Mm -hmm. So basically, interval recovery, interval recovery, your body recovering between by. As soon as you stop the interval, you do some mentally cognitive task, and then you start the interval again. Your body obviously gets covered, but your brain is continually engaged. That's going to increase your mental work you're doing, uh, um, you know, an interval training session, basically. Um, another one, which I think with cyclists, with people that train a lot, I don't think it's, or triathletes, it's not really feasible because it, it adds time to training. But I think it may be feasible, especially for people that, because they're fragile, they cannot train a lot, is that you may pre-fatigue yourself mentally, and then you go out, and then again, you can do it in, on a computer, that's easy. And then you go out and you do a, a, a run in a mentally fatigued state. So the mileage that you do remains the same, but because you do that, let's say a long uh, training session, that if you increase the mileage, you might start to get this overuse injury. You keep the mileage the same, but because you do mental effort, it's like the training session is not, let's say, an hour running. It's half an hour brain running, mm -hmm. let's say, only the brain, and then another hour of running. You know what I mean? So you increase yeah, the yeah. workload, but you increase it only on the brain, not on your joints, tendons, and muscle that gets you all the, the bad, uh, yeah. But of course, I'm not saying that you should substitute this for... You know, if you can train, yeah, do do the mileage first. But this is yes. some some things on top. But so I, think, I suppose related to that, um, would you say that a lot of of that brain training is is really just trying to reinforce toughness and trying to reinforce the ability to uh, to dig in uh, and to kind of not give up? That it's it's helping to to make that stronger. Yeah, I think so because especially. Um, although now there is some some study that suggests maybe it may not be uh, so crucial as I thought originally, but basically boring tasks, tasks that you don't want to do are more mentally fatiguing than difficult tasks that you like to do. So, for example, mm -hmm. although there is some research, maybe the difference may not be as big as, as, as we thought before. But, for example, you, if you play a video game that you love, it's very mentally demanding playing some video games. I mean, and you play for two hours, you're not going to be, you're going to be mentally fatigued. But I'm, I'm telling you, if I give you a boring mental task for half an hour, you're going to be more tired <laughs> than two hours of good. Yeah, makes sense. Yes. So the, the problem is, you see, the problem is that if you get too bored, you lose motivation, you may disengage from the task. So it's like you go slower on the run. So that's not going to have a big training effect. So you really need to be motivated to do, as you say, something you don't like because that is going to require effort, mental effort, and therefore have the training 
psychological. Well, that's more similar to what you're doing in the race. You're yeah, not exactly. liking the fact exactly. that you're suffering, so you're, exactly. you're training the but brain if you for like, that. Oh my god, this is so boring. I don't want to do it. And you do it. You don't engage with it. Then it's like running slow for nothing. So, um, so yes, it's 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 the boredom of it and <laughs> unpleasantness of it may actually be a feature that is important to get the adaptation. But I think actually, although. It may give you this uh, at a psychological level. I think actually it's there are actually things that are going on biologically when you do those tasks. I mean, mm-hmm. you increase the activity of a, an area. It's called the anterior cingulate cortex. When you do tasks, especially the tasks that require response inhibition, when you need to kind of control your behavior doing these cognitive tasks, that is strongly associated with perception of effort and so-called effort-based decision-making in animals because they, they cannot measure perception of effort in animals. They measure behavior associated with effort. And they, both these lines of evidence, neuroimaging in humans and behavioral studies in animals, show that this area of the brain is really crucial for effort, for behavior that requires effort, such as an endurance event. So you actually, it's more than just, oh, learning to do something that you don't want to do is it's really you really activate you really have activity in in brain areas that are important for you during the race so it's truly a, a, almost at the biological level uh, sort of training and, right? and that comes back to the whole point that it's a, a psychobiological model it's yeah. it's combining what the brain not just the the thought process but also the the kind of chemical reactions in the brain as well that affect your ability to, to do stuff our psychology is uh, is 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 a higher level of brain physiology. That's it. We we describe it psychologically, but but we are talking about brain function. It's like psychology is is for the brain what the urine is for the kidneys. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 the product of it. So yeah, no, I mean, it, it, and and I think. I, I do have a million more questions, but uh, we have kind of come to the end of the time there. I think that that's probably a, a good point. <laughs> let's end it on the urine analogy there. That's <laughs> on a high. No, th- thank you so much for, for your time there. And I think there's a lot of, of genuine takeaways. That, and just, as you said, it's common sense stuff. But when you can actually use that common sense uh then you can benefit from it rather than yeah. knowing something but then in sometimes in the real some world some of it's common sense yeah but some of it for example like doing this mental task stuff mm-hmm. yeah. no that that's not obvious no. or, or or that mental fatigue may impair your performance so you need to take care of it as much as you do for your muscle fatigue also that was not really so expected and <laughs> and and uh but yes uh, i think in the end i think Hopefully, but I already see it. A lot of people tell me that just change a little bit the perspective has motivated them to include mm-hmm. psychology, sports psychology. It's been used a lot with gymnastics, with golf, with team sports. It's been way underutilized in endurance performance uh, athletes yeah. because it's, ah, oh, my endurance performance is just running or cycling. That's all lungs and muscles and heart. Even the psychologists underestimated how important the psychology is in endurance. So I think even just motivating people, but I guess even my psychology colleagues, uh, to, 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 to focus more on endurance sports and for endurance athletes to use more standard psychological techniques and by doing that, improving their performance. If that's my... Even even if just that is my let's say legacy from an applied point of view, I'm gonna be very happy because 
although this has been these things have been around for a long time, they've been really underutilized in endurance performance. Um, and now I think it's, it's changing. So I'm happy with that. Excellent. Well, you're certainly a big part of that. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'll put in links to some of the stuff we mentioned, as well as for how people can follow you on things like social media. Yeah. But Sam, th- thank you so much and uh, have a, a great evening. You're welcome, Indy. You-